Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am here with Darcy today. Say hi, Darcy. Hey, guys. Um, If you didn't know, this is that crazy podcast where we talk about a lot of strange stuff, true crime, supernatural, paranormal, all the other fascinating stuff that we do so love to talk about. If it's weird, wild, bizarre, and provocative, we're going to talk about it on this podcast today. As per our promise, a couple of episodes ago, we are going to do a part two to the National Parks episode that we did earlier, in which we're going to talk about some touch points um, on National Point deaths, and then maybe some more current stuff as well. National Park deaths, you mean? Yes. Um, What do you got to drink tonight, Darcy? Oh, I'm drinking, I'm on my second generous pour of Pinot Noir. Ooh. And I am enjoying that tonight. So Darcy's bougie tonight. She's not fucking around mm-hmm. with the whiskey or anything else crazy. She's just going straight for the wine to pretend like she's high class. Straight for the wine. <laughs> she's high falutin. Look, it was like a twelve dollar bottle of wine, so I'm not here Still, to try and pretend. My like, champagne that I, I normally drink down is like five dollars a bottle. <laughs> yeah. And you know what I was thinking the other day? I miss five cent wine. Like the Bevmo special. Five cent oh, wine. Where the fuck do you get five cent wine? I need to go there immediately. If you, at Bevmo, if you buy a bottle, if you're like a member, you buy a bottle and they, you buy get another bottle for five cents or something. What? Insane. I'm telling you, look at, I miss Bev, Bevmo so hard. So before There's we like get tier, started. thing to get alcohol. Right? Because of Jesus. Anything with alcohol and getting free alcohol or cheap alcohol is great for me. I found this really interesting article that I kind of want to chat about before we get started on the national parks, but I saw this. This veteran miraculously survives after being impaled by a stolen tripod that was thrown off an overpass. I saw this in the news today. This happened in California. It says a veteran is lucky in Sacramento. A veteran is lucky to be alive after a tripod was thrown from an overpass in Sacramento, California and crashed through the windshield of a van impaling him in the chest. Holy shit. Since the terrifying accident, Officer Jim Young of California Highway Patrol tells people they have named Matthew Adam Thompson as the suspect they believe allegedly threw the stolen camera stand deliberately from the overpass and into the windshield of a military charities Dodge van where the veteran was a passenger. The, what? The driver luckily did not suffer any injuries from the window crash, so was able to pull the van over safely. The passenger was treated for his injuries at a nearby hospital and has since been released. Um, speaking to people, Young says a person who authorities believe to be Thompson was captured on surveillance camera stealing the Caltrans survey tripod around 10.30 a.m. on Thursday morning. Just five minutes later, the tripod was allegedly thrown over the overpass by Thompson, which smashed straight into the van's windshield. That's bonkers. Uh, in any case, good thing this guy was like with his shit and pulled over and was able to provide help and assistance and got this guy some help immediately for real. Um, and it basically says it was a very exciting few minutes says the driver. I'm glad I was able to pull over quickly and safely 65 plus years old with lots of driving experience. Didn't prepare me for this instant surprise coming through our windshield. It showed me how quickly my life could have ended. Wow. So ironically, this transport was kind of a nonprofit military family support group. So they have not yet confirmed the passenger who was impaled, but this is like so fucked up that they would, some idiot would do something like that. But 
The veteran passenger, the veteran of service for the U.S., was injured and hospitalized with broken ribs, scratches, and a half-collapsed lung. Scary Holy shit. That's scary. like a thing, though, that's becoming popular amongst the youths is throwing shit off of overpasses. Like in Nashville, a couple months back, um, some kids threw like a huge like chunk of concrete or something off of the, an overpass, overpass yeah. and killed a driver on the freeway. I just don't understand this trend. Right. It is just terrifying. We are so thankful that this gentleman was able to recover, post the pictures on this. It's pretty scary. Like the images of the windshield shattered and the, the actual tripod is fucking huge. Oh my God. Um, and I'm that, glad they found that's this just asshole. so bizarre. But you know, I'm so glad they have video cameras too in most of these areas so they can catch these right. assholes that are doing shit like this. It's just, it's awful. Like find a different hobby, get a, get a fucking life. Don't do shit like this. Get a job. Right. Just awful. And this is the guy that did it was 32 years old. So it's not like it was a young, you know, he knew better. And there's actually a picture of him. Wow. The guy that did it. It's a white dude. Scary. Looks, looks high. Anyway, moving right along, we just say our hearts go out to this, this poor guy who suffered this injury from this needless activity. Yeah. Asshole that threw the tripod off, but don't do shit like that. Yeah. Be better. Exactly. To quote Melania. What else do you got for us? So we're going to stay in current news for just a second, and it has to do with our topic today. On the Appalachian Trail, there was a murder recently, a murder and an attack, and the victim who died was actually a veteran as well, and he served three tours in Iraq, and he was 43 years old, and he was going to do a through hike, which means hiking the entire thing from Georgia to Maine. Yeah. Was this machete guy? The one that did- this, I believe this was the machete, yeah. So sometime early on May 11, a man who had frightened others along the trail with his erratic behavior allegedly invaded the camp that Sanchez, who was our victim, and three others had set up in the Wise County. The man threatened to burn the hikers' tents, and they decided to leave. But as they tried to leave the campsite, the man confronted the group with a long knife and eventually stabbed two of them, killing Sanchez. Was it a long knife so or was it a machete? I heard a machete originally, but this says long knife, but I, they might be using the two interchangeably here. Okay. The suspect, James Lewis Jordan, 30, of Yarmouth, Massachusetts, was charged with murder and assault and ordered held for a psychiatric evaluation. His ex-wife said that his heart was really big. He would help anybody. He was excited to get to Maine. The guy who died? It's so devastating. Yeah, his, yeah. Okay. It's so devastating he died like this after all of those deployments. So he was from Anaheim, the Anaheim, Anaheim area. Yeah. And he entered the Army in April of 1995. He served in Iraq in 2003, 2005, and 2007, and he left the service in 2011. In Iraq, he worked on bridges and construction projects. So he, yeah, he left the army and was living in Missouri. And he said that he wanted to find peace in nature. And that's why he was going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And the problem is, like, when you're out there, and we talked about this before, when you're out there in those areas of the national parks, your guard is down. You're enjoying nature. You're relaxing. You're just, you're not thinking that some asshole or some crazy person is going to come out of nowhere and swing a machete at you right and and i will say for as many people as you know hike the appalachian trail every year violence is very rare so i will say that but actually one of my what the thing i'm going to talk about today is the first murder on the appalachian trail 
And this is from an article called The Stranger in the Shelter. It's written by Earl Swift from Outside Magazine. This was on Outside Online. And the article came out in November 2018. So this is the first, like, recent murder on the Appalachian Trail. No, this is the first murder on the Appalachian Trail that we're going to talk about now. Yeah. So, and I also pulled some information from AppalachianTrail.org. And I will say that a lot of people say Appalachian, but I have recently learned that it is pronounced Appalachian. And I have a friend who teaches at Appalachian State. And so shout out to Meg for informing me on how to properly pronounce this. So the Appalachian Trail is the longest hiking only trail in the world. So there's no paved roads or anything. You just hike it. No trucks, no no bikes, no nothing, just walking. Nope. Yeah. So... It covers 14 states and runs from Springer Mountain, Georgia, to Mount Katahdin, Maine. I've actually been to Mount Katahdin. It's beautiful. My dad climbed it. I didn't climb it. But Maine is gorgeous in the summertime. So it's approximately 2,200 miles long. And this this kind of varies based on rerouting and modification over the years, mm-hmm. the, the distance. But it's around 2,200 miles. More than 3 million people are said to hike at least some part of the trail each year. Wow. So people who hike the entire trail, yeah. So people who hike the entire trail in a single season are called through hikers. And most through hikers go from Georgia to Maine. And the season starts around March and April. So the idea is you start in March or April in Georgia where it's relatively mild weather before it gets too hot. Uh And you hike until July or August. And you end up in Maine in July or August where it's mild weather there. Right. Although I've That's been, kind of the idea. I've been in Maine in July and it was pretty fucking hot. So I, really? I don't know that it was it, like it's 70s. that mild, but, um, yeah, in any case, maybe for sure was, milder than, than Georgia and right. August. Maybe that was just an unusually warm summer. <laughs> yeah. So about 10% though, do go from Maine to Georgia and the entire trail takes you about six months to do. Wow. That's yeah. a long trip. And there's about there's about a thousand through hikers that attempt it, but only twenty five percent make it through. I actually know somebody who did hike the entire thing. That's cool. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is like with it takes those, a lot of time and a lot of money. Oh yeah. I mean you can't be working during that. You have to take like a year off or in train for it. And the thing is with those hikers that do the long distance trails like that, there are like shops and post office and stops in between so you can go and get more supplies because clearly when you walk that long and that many miles, you go through more than one pair of shoes. For sure. Yeah. Um that was actually that's funny that you say that because my dad is, he climbs mountains and he asked me to ask my friend that climbed the that, that hiked the trail, how many pairs of boots he went through. So that's really funny that you said that. He, my friend went through three pair of boots. Yeah. It's, but it's one like he a said ton. he accidentally, he was drying them out by the fire and he actually accidentally lit them on fire. So. Whoops. <laughs> that's a costly yeah. mistake. Yeah. So, but yeah, you're right on the trail. They do have little like offshoot towns where you can go into and you can pick up your mail and they can, people can send you supplies. So there's locations and you pick them up on a certain day. They have little hotels you can stay in and restaurants where you can get dinner. And it's like a whole community of people around the Appalachian Trail all the way from Georgia to Maine. Yeah. Awesome. So our story is starts in March of 1974. Okay. So Margaret McFadden Harrett was 17 years old and a freshman at the University of South Carolina in the fall of 1973. Okay. So South Carolina, University of South Carolina is in Columbia, South Carolina. Okay. She loved reading and spending time outdoors. She grew up canoeing in the pond behind her family's house in Sumter, South Carolina, which fun fact is where the civil civil war started. Oh, wow. Fort Sumter. So she 
was was pretty outdoorsy and liked being outside in nature and everything. So when she goes to school, she gets a job at a local restaurant, Capri's Italian. And that's where she meets, where was working when she meets Joel Polson in March of 1974. Okay. So Joel was what you would consider like granola. So he had long hair, mustache, goatee, wore shorts year round. And he was nine years older when they met. So he was, was that 26 in 1974. And so he was from Hartsville, South Carolina. I don't do math. Youngest, so you're, you're yeah. <laughs> asking the wrong person trust, to confirm. <laughs> trust me on that. So he, he was young, the youngest of three. And when he was 13 or 14, he climbed a tree onto the roof of the garage and he actually fell. And when his parents came home, they found him dirty and discombobulated, but he couldn't remember what happened. His brother said that he was kind of a little off ever since the fall. But by the time he was well enough to go back to school, he's two years older than everybody else because he had missed so much school. Yikes. And his friends described him as childlike and kind of naive, and he just didn't see people as threatening. Uh-huh. And he was always kind of into outdoorsy things. And in 1970, he bought a road bike and rode from Hartsville, South Carolina, to Kent, Ohio. Wow. And he had planned to do a cross-country bike ride a few years later. But he actually had to stop in Texas because he got hemorrhoids of riding on bikes. And oh my road God. bikes, they're not comfortable. No. Like, they're not comfortable. I'm not a bike rider. So, I No matter what kind of gels, pants, and, and super soft seat you get, I can't ride a bike for longer than, like, yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah. they. Are, I actually just started kind of getting into cycling. And you have to have, like, special pants with, like padding in the butt and it still hurts. It's, yeah. it's just not I just My body is not so, made for biking. I'm sorry. Yeah. So after he comes back from Texas, he started reading about the Appalachian Trail and started getting into this idea of climbing it. So from the first day that Margaret met Joel, he talked about wanting to hike the trail and he invited her to come along. At first she said no, because she just met this guy and she's like, I'm not trying to go hike outdoors with you for six months. Yeah. But she ran into him a couple of times in town and at this outdoor store that she hung out with in and, and he kept bringing it up. So she eventually decided, like, he seems nice enough. You know, I'm not romantically interested in him. He's just a nice friend. She wore him down. Wasn't really, yeah, and she wasn't really enjoying her time in college uh, at South Carolina. And so she was already decided that she wasn't going to come back and wasn't sure what she was going to do next. So she was like, maybe this trip will kind of help me figure out what I want to do yeah. with my life. So she decides she's going to go with him. So they start in Georgia. And they are on the northbound route. So on the first day, they're not, like, well-trained for this. It's not like they spent time training or any of that. So Mm -hmm. they're feeling the difficulty of hiking from Georgia to Maine. Right. So, you know, their their packs are getting really heavy. I mean, there's a picture of this girl, like, with her brand-new pack, and, like, she's got everything in it, and it's just – Is this, like, one of those stereotypical 70 pictures, 70s pictures? Kind of, but – not, I mean, kind of, but it's like, she's got this huge pack on and it's probably the size of her. Good Lord. And it's like, she's not very big. And so it just, it just dwarfs her. Like it's crazy how much stuff she has, which I imagine is probably the exact amount of stuff you need because you're going to be outside for six months. The Appalachian trail. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they're, they're feeling the weight of the packs and she's getting blisters on her feet. A few miles in, they encounter some foresters with chainsaws who are looking for trees that had been blown down in some storms. And they kind of talk to them for a little bit and they hike a few miles farther and they see a sign pointing to a side trail 
to a shelter. It's called the Low Gap Shelter. So they decided they were going to camp there for the night. They hadn't made it very far, but that was that was the end of their day kind of a thing. Okay. So they do have these shelters, and I believe they're kind of kept up with the Appalachian Trail Conservatory, which is mm-hmm. an organization of just volunteers. Okay. And it's literally just a lean-to. Like, it's built with wood planks. It's got wood floors, like a tin metal roof. It's it's teeny tiny. They fit about five people comfortably. There's not even four walls to it. It's just three walls and kind of open front. Okay. So they get to the shelter and there's another hiker that's already there. Pretty nondescript kind of dude. He was older than Joel. So maybe late twenties, early thirties mm-hmm. and was shorter. Joel was a pretty tall, skinny dude. And this guy was, was maybe five inches shorter. And he had a wispy mustache, horn rim glasses, just kind of very, not anybody you would look twice at, you know? Right. So they they get to the shelter and they introduce themselves and you know he's uh, he introduces himself. His name is Ralph. They get settled at the shelter and Margaret goes down to the stream that's like right behind the shelter to kind of wash off the day. And Joel goes down there too to wash off. And he's like, "Hey, I don't know if I trust this Ralph character. He doesn't look like a hiker. He's not wearing the right boots. He didn't have any proper gear." Hmm. And you know, come to think of it, we left our packs up there in the shelter with him and he's probably stealing our shit right now. Uh-oh. So I kind of hurry back to the shelter, but Ralph had was kind of like in his sleeping bag the whole time. He hadn't touched their gear. Everything was, nothing was moved. They're like, okay, you know, he seems kind of normal. I'm not really sure about him, but whatever. So they start a fire, they cook dinner and they offer him some food, but he doesn't want, he, you know, declines, whatever. And when they were eating, Ralph leaves the shelter, wanders into the woods, and returns with an armful of wood for the fire. So he leaves a couple times. He leaves, I think, in total like three times, just going off into the woods and bringing back wood for the fire. Okay. One of these times when he's gone, Joel's like, you know, this guy's probably fine, but I still he skis me out. So like, we let's leave early the next morning just to be safe, cover our bases. Okay. Um and. We- We'll we'll hike a couple miles, make it further up the trail, and that's when we'll stop for breakfast. Margaret's Margaret goes to bed, and Joel and Ralph kept building the fire, but they didn't really talk that much. They didn't really interact. The next morning, Joel wakes Margaret up, and he's like, "Hey, get your stuff. Let's let's go ahead and go." His pack was already ready and leaning against the tree outside. Mm-hmm. So Joel goes down to the stream to splash some water on his face and starts coming back up to the shelter. And by this time, Ralph has also woken up, and he steps out of the shelter. So Margaret's getting ready and she's lacing up her boot and she hears a loud, sharp, like blast, like bang. Uh-oh. She looks up and Joel has fallen into like a crouching position on his knees and his head is re- resting on the fire ring. Oh no. Yeah. So before Margaret could even register what was happening, Ralph had leapt into the shelter and was standing over her holding a large revolver. He ties Margaret's hands behind her back and he leads her further into the woods. She asks him if Joel's dead and Ralph's like, no, he's not dead. He's just hurt. So she asks, hey, can you pull him away from the fire ring so that he doesn't get burned? Because there's still like embers and stuff, you know? Yeah. And um, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll pull him back. So he leads her to a tree and he tells her to sit down with her legs wrapped around the trunk. What? And then he ties her feet together and he blindfolds her. And he asks, you know, do I have to gag you? Margaret says, no. And then she asks, what are you going to do with me? And Ralph says, I don't know. And then he walks off. 10 or 15 minutes pass before he returns and he leads her back to the shelter. 
but Joel's gone. And she asks where he is, and all Ralph said was, I got rid of him. Oh, no. Ralph makes her pack up, and they head further into the woods. So at this point, Margaret is, like, certain that he's going to kill her. So she just starts talking to him. You know, you really don't have any reason to do this. I didn't do anything to you. And Ralph just says, well, neither did Joel. Fucking terrifying. And so... He again sits her next to a tree and ties her hands and feet together and said he was going to leave her there. And he'd leave a note at the shelter saying where she could be found. But this time he, so he didn't blindfold her. And so he kind of like puts a little bowl with like water. And I think there was maybe like some trail mix or something. And he basically makes her prove that she can get to the water and get to the trail mix, like without using her hands to kind of make sure like he's like okay i need to make sure you can get water and food while i leave you here after i killed your friend like super super fucked she's sitting there and trying to kind of strain her ears to hear footsteps because she's like okay if ralph comes back he's he's going to kill me you know and after 15 minutes he did come back but he said he wasn't going to kill her he said i can't leave you here what if it's days before anyone shows up you die and i don't want that uh, although I just killed somebody. Uh, yeah. So then he goes on to say, you know, I didn't want to kill Joel. He just, I had to because I wanted his gear and Joel was such a big guy. I couldn't just take it from him. So we had to kill him. The fuck? Which, what the fuck? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. But he says, I'm not going to kill you. I've never, quote, whacked a chick before. The f- so he, he gives her a choice. He's like, you can stay here or you can walk out of the woods with me. And as soon as we get to civilization, I'm going to let you go home. Oh, so they're walking. Yeah. So they're walking and a little bit later, they're packed up, head back, headed back to the trail. Margaret's walking in front and Ralph has his gun, you know, at her back. He means a few steps behind. Mm -hmm. So they're walking and he says, I'm going to let you go. But if we run into anyone before we reach civilization and you say anything or do anything to signal that there's something wrong, you're all going to die. And I'm going to kill you first. We're all going to die. You are all going to die. Uh, I thought it was just her. Well, you and the person that you're talking to. Like, if you signal to somebody else, if we oh. come along somebody else and you okay. let them know, like, okay, you're in danger or whatever. Okay. So they're not far into their hike when they come across those foresters with the chainsaws. Oh. And Margaret is freaking out because she's like, hey, if they recognize me with another man and not Joel, we're, we're all dying. Like, this is the end for us. Even though they have chainsaws? So, <laughs> Well, I mean, before they could, like, crank up a chainsaw, he's probably going to get off a couple rounds, you know? One of the guys actually does notice her, and he's like, oh, yeah, I saw y'all yesterday, but that's all he says. He couldn't stop to talk because their ride was picking him up later that afternoon, and they had, like, a long hike to get there. So he's like, we got to go. Can't hang out and talk, but good to see you again. And so he checks out. They keep walking the trail, and Ralph changes the plan, of course. So he's like, I can't let you go when we reach the road. I need some more time to figure out what my next move is going to be, and I can't let you go yet. So we're going to hitch the ride, hitch a ride to the nearest town, and we're going to get a room, and then I'll let you go in the morning. They get to the road, and they hitch a ride with a woman who takes them to Helen, Georgia. And Ralph forges some of Joel's traveler's checks to get some cash, and he gets him a room under the names Mr. and Mrs. Joel Polson, which I just think is so fucked up. Right. So at one point, Margaret's like, hey, I need to take a shower, and Ralph follows her into the bathroom, but he doesn't touch her or even look at her or anything. He just wants to make sure she's not going to climb through the window. 
And then he says, he has the fucking audacity to say, hey, you know, it's too bad that we didn't meet under different circumstances. If all this hadn't happened, I could have really liked you. Gross. Yeah, if you hadn't killed my friend and been a crazy asshole, maybe we could have been friends. What the fuck? They stay in the hotel room. Nothing happens. And the next morning they pack and they go to a gas station to cash some more traveler's checks. And they go to a restaurant for some coffee. And Ralph tells Margaret that, you know, I'm still going to let you go, but I couldn't possibly think of allowing you to hitchhike home to South Carolina. There's no telling what sort of person might pick you up. Jesus. Like, like literally anybody's better than you, dude. Right. Anybody. At this point, if I so, crawled on my hands and knees, it would be better than hanging out with you. Right. Let me just talk to the server and she's going to, he or she is going to call, uh, call the police and that's how I'm going to get home or call a cab. Whatever. Right. They go, they're going to find a a bus station and then they're going to go their separate ways. So they hitch a couple of rides to the nearest Greyhound and Margaret buys a ticket to Columbia because that's where she's going to go back to. And because Ralph has to keep her at point blank distance with his gun, it's not like he can hide his destination. And he's like, one ticket to Atlanta, please. (laughs) So they're waiting for their buses. And Ralph is, like, doing this whole thing where he's like, yeah, it's probably stupid that I'm letting you live. I know you're probably going to go to the police, and the cops are going to be looking for a man with Joel's pack, but... Is this guy intellectually disabled, too? Not, to my knowledge. (laughs) Just not the brightest guy. Not a great criminal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he's like, you know, the cops are probably going to be looking for somebody that's got Joel's pack, but hopefully I can get a few hours head start. And if you call the police as soon as I leave and they're waiting when I get to Atlanta, innocent people are going to die. I'm going to start shooting and I won't care who gets hurt. So Ralph's bus arrives and Margaret watches Joel's pack being loaded into the cargo hold and Ralph gets on and they pull away. And so Margaret gets back to Columbia and immediately calls the police because, of course, and she tells them about Ralph and Joel's murder. So about 11.15 that same night, the White County Sheriff's Department finds Joel. He's covered in leaves and sticks across the stream from the shelter. He had been drugged by his armpits, and his head was in a plastic bag, which was tied around his head with a piece of string. So the autopsy found that he'd been shot with a thirty-eight caliber bullet, which entered just behind his left ear and came to a stop behind his right ear. So they could... They had the bullet, basically. So a week after the murder, the Atlanta PD got a phone tip from a woman saying she had met the man that matched this description and she knew she knows where he lives. So police get a search warrant. And when they get there, Ralph's not home. But inside his apartment, they do find Joel's backpack, his clothes and camping gear and a revolver containing live rounds with one empty cartridge. So a GBI, which is Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent, waits in Ralph's apartment until he returns. And that's when 31-year-old Ralph Howard Fox is arrested. A little bit about our, our pal Ralph here. So he's raised in Detroit. And in his teens, he well, kidnapped a girl from a party. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> in his teens, he kidnapped a girl from a party that he threw while his parents are away. So he throws a party at his house and kidnaps a girl from his own house. That's how they do in Detroit. So, do you know that? Not, not a great criminal. <laughs> at, so at 17, he's arrested for car theft. And again, he's arrested at 18 for breaking and entering. When he is 20, he runs away to New Mexico with a teenage girl where he was arrested for statutory rape and 
contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Okay, then. And a few months later, he marries her. Her name is Anne. So the next year, Anne was 16 and pregnant. And Ralph forced a Detroit high school junior to to get into his car at gunpoint and then drove her 13 miles into the woods. And thank God, a cop found them as he was tying the girl's hands behind her back. And for this, he got 15 years and a divorce. He gets out on parole, breaks into Anne's apartment, and waits for her to come home. And when she comes home, he shoots at her with a rifle, but he missed. So he flees the state, and he bounces around New Orleans, Fort Lauderdale, and Atlanta for a while. And the first time he steps onto the Appalachian Trail is five days before he kills Joel. And so uh, There was in, nothing but trouble that, it, that was going to come out of that the rest yeah, of his this life. Guy, yeah, this guy didn't. Yeah, he was, he was one of those that was doomed from the jump. So he's sentenced to life in Georgia State Prison. And after 17 years, his older brother died. This is in 91. And he's granted a one-month reprieve to attend a funeral in Michigan. What the fuck? Just which, gets out for a which, month? Well, so he gets a one-month reprieve, and that turns into a parole. The fuck? Yeah. So they, they transfer his supervision to Michigan, and he moves in with his sister, Corinne. And his sister's like, you know, this is your chance to start a new life. You can be a new person, a better person. And guess how long that lasts? Uh, a month? Seven months. Seven, seven months. months. He did make it seven months. He fails to appear at a meeting with his PO, and he doesn't turn up at home or work. And a week later, March of 1992, police are called to a muddy field in Lapeer, Michigan, where they discover the nude body of 29-year-old Diane Good of Detroit, and she had been strangled. Investigators found evidence that a car had gotten stuck in the mud in this area, so they contacted local tow companies. And one tow truck driver remembers pulling a car from the field, and he gives the owner's name as Ralph Fox. So police issue a nationwide alert for Ralph and his car. Two days later, he is arrested in, is it Skagit or Skagit County, Washington? So he's trying to break into a parked car. At his trial... Oh, it's Skagit. Did you say Skagit? No, I said Skagit. So Skagit. Skagit. County Sorry. Washington. I'm completely spacing. So, <laughs> so that's how he's arrested. Skagit. For, for breaking into a car. And he is convicted of murder in 92. And at his sentence, Judge Martin Clement said, Mr. Fox, you were convicted of murder before in another state. You are now convicted of two murders in your lifetime. I am satisfied that you pose a substantial risk to, to a free society and you should never be let out of prison ever for any reason. And Ralph died in prison in July 2003 from lung cancer. Good riddance. But story's not quite over because there's a happy ending to this. So Margaret transfers to Clemson and she majored in forestry. She actually went on to get her doctorate and she spent several years in the tropical forests of Brazil. And she joined USAID, which is the U.S. Agency for International Development, where she worked in Honduras, Nicaragua, Bolivia, Pakistan, and five former Soviet republics. So now she's in her 60s, lives in Southern Europe with her husband. They have two children, three stepchildren, and two grandkids. And that's the story of the first murder on the Appalachian Trail. The first murder in regular times. I'm sure there were older murders, don't you think? Well, I think since maybe this was like, since the Appalachian Trail became a national park or something, hmm. this was the first reported murder. 
Interesting. Lucky that the girl made it out alive, though. I mean, that could have been much worse. I mean, granted, I'm not saying that somebody dying is, you know, any kind of a good scenario, but at least it wasn't two people and it was only one. Right. And there's so many chances where this could have gone sideways. And just the fact that he let her go at all, you're, it just, it, it's, it's one of those things that you can't figure out the answer to. And, and it sounds like he didn't sexually assault her either. Am I just missing? No. So like he uh, could have done all kinds of terrible things, which is what I was expecting to happen. And it really didn't. Yeah. He really just wanted the pack. Like that's why he did this. He wanted Joel's pack. Yeah. Well, I think that our next um, character that we're going to be discussing is much like Mr. Ralph in, in some ways and, and different in other ways, but I'm going to talk about Carrie Stainer. Um, Ooh. This guy is a more uh, recent um, killer than our previous one. Carrie Anthony Stainer was born August 13th, 1961, and is the older brother of kidnapping victim Stephen Stainer. Carrie Stainer was born and raised in Merced, California. His younger brother, Stephen Stainer, was kidnapped by child molester Kenneth Parnell in 1972. So when Carrie was 11, this whole thing happened, and his little brother, Stephen, was held captive for more than seven years before he escaped and was reunited with his family. So this story is really insane, too, and we are going to actually do a bonus episode that is dedicated to talking about what happened to his little brother, Stephen. So stay tuned, folks. We will provide more information on that, but... Throughout the course of that whole seven-year ordeal for his little brother, Carrie said that he really like felt neglected by his parents because they were grieving over the loss of their other son, Stephen. But Stephen ended up escaping and returning home in the 80s where he got a lot of media attention and books and movies and all kinds of stuff kind of happened out of that. But then he ended up passing away in a motorcycle accident in 89. So it was kind of like he came back for a short period of time and then ended up dying nine years later. The following year, Stainer's uncle Jesse, with whom he was living at the time, was murdered. And Stater later claimed that this same uncle molested him at the same time period when Stephen was kidnapped. So he was saying that Mm. during this whole time period where I'm like so vulnerable because my younger brother's missing and there's all kinds of craziness going on, my uncle took advantage of this and molested me during that time period. The whole thing about this particular crime that he is best known for is in 1997. And I vaguely kind of remember when this whole thing was going on. But some background on this. In 1997, Stainer was hired as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel in El Porto, California, just outside the Highway 140 entrance to Yosemite National Park. Between February and July of 1999, he murdered two women and two teenagers. Unfortunately, 42-year-old Carol Sund, her daughter 15-year-old Julie Sund, and Julie's friend 16-year-old Argentine exchange student Silviana Peloso, And then he also ended up killing Yosemite Institute employee Joey Ruth Armstrong, 26, who was a naturalist. So let me just get a little bit more detail into this. So evidently... That's a crazy amount of shit to happen in one family. In any case, I think it deeply scarred him as a person. And he just ended up being sort of fucked up from all the stuff that happened to him. And I got the impression from just watching so many shows and seeing different podcasts about him that he really felt like he couldn't interact and have normal relationships with women. So he's felt well, kind of unloved and, 
like isolated. But I've also read though that he had violent tendencies even before Stephen was kidnapped. That I had not heard. But a lot of shows have done little feature shows about him. But basically, so he's hired at this lodge to be their handyman. And he's kind of like watching these two teenagers and the mom in the room because they went to this park basically in the winter months and not a whole lot of people were there. So it wasn't like there was a ton of people to compete for his attention, but he's supposedly, you know, taking care of this park or this um, motel and watching these, these teens and the woman, they're kind of alone in this big, huge motel. But initially he goes to their room and knocks on the door and says, Hey, you know, there's some kind of a, a leak or a plumbing issue. I need to get in there so that I can do some repairs. And, the mom was like, no, you're not coming in here. And then he came back. Good for her. Yeah. She, well, she had this intuitive like thing. And this is why as women and as just victims in general, trust your intuition because nine right. times out of 10, you are usually spot on, but she wouldn't let him in at first. And then he kept coming back and told them that if they did not move to let him come in, he was going to have to have them move rooms. So at that point, Carol was like, all right, come in, fucking fix it. Like, what's he going to do? It's there's three of us here. But he came in and he initially first killed the mom and the Argentinian student and put them into the trunk of the car, which was a Pontiac rental that the mom had rented, burned those two bodies and they were burned beyond recognition and were identified using only dental records. So it's my understanding that he put them in the trunk, drove the truck, the car to an isolated area where no one would be able to find it. And it stayed there for a while before they were actually able to locate the vehicle and figure out who it was in the back. And even then it was burned so badly that it took a lot of different sources to be able to identify who it was that was in the car and which one of the girls it was because there were only two of them and everybody knew that there were three of the three of them right. had been together. Did he burn the car, set the car on fire? He did. Yes. He burned okay. the car and with the bodies inside of it so that he could try right. to get rid of that evidence and sort of maybe eviscerate any evidence of him being there or his DNA or anything he'd possibly left behind. He then sent a note to the police with a hand-drawn map indicating the location of the third victim who was Julie. The top of the note read, we had fun with this one. So investigators went to the location depicted on the map and found the remains of Julie whose throat had been cut. And it's my understanding that he actually kept Julie hostage and took her out into the woods and like got a blanket Mm. and he sexually assaulted her and did all kinds of just terrible, awful things to her in the period of time that he held her before he actually ended up killing her. And he like told her that he loved her. And he just, when I guess when he was being interviewed for the crime, he was telling investigators that he really cared about her and felt like she really cared about him too. Um, total sick. But, um, detectives began interviewing employees of the Cedar Lodge motel where the first three victims had been slain or had been staying just before their death. So they're kind of backtracking to see, you know, who potentially could have exposed themselves to these victims and who may have been around during the time that they were kidnapped and captured. One of these employees was Stainer, but he was not considered a suspect at that point because he had no criminal history and remained calm during the police interview. So he's a psychopath. Yeah. When the decapitated body of Joey Ruth Armstrong was found, eyewitnesses said they saw a blue 1979 International Scout, which is kind of like a Jeep-type car, parked outside the cabin where she was staying. Detectives traced this vehicle to Stainer, 
which led him to becoming the prime suspect in the case. So this poor gal, Joey Ruth Armstrong, was getting ready to go on a trip, and she was packing up her car, and he had come along, and she saw him and thought he looked kind of suspicious, and so she was kind of keeping an eye out for him, but figured, I'm out here in the open. What is he really going to do? And evidently he came up and asked her a question, and she ended up, he ended up grabbing her, and he slit her throat so violently that he almost decapitated her or like basically decapitated her body and then dropped her in a stream. And the thing is, when I hear the stories about what he did and whatnot, it just seems as though he had no logical reasons why he should do this to these victims. But in any case, um, FBI agent John Bowles and Jeff Reinick found Steiner staying at the Laguna del Sol nudist resort in mm, Milton, yikes. where he was arrested and taken to Sacramento for questioning. So again, the people that go to nudist resorts, sorry, this is a sidebar, are never people you want to see nude. No. And you know, from what I understand, like he was just calm as could fucking be sitting at a booth, having a soda or a drink or whatever. He wasn't participating in any of the nudist activities. He was just hanging out. Just chilling. looking at naked people. Evidently. During his interrogation, Stainer shocked the agents when he confessed not only to Armstrong's decapitation, but the murders of Peloso and Sons and the sending of the map for finding Julie's body as well. His vehicle yielded evidence proving his link to Joey Armstrong. So he claimed that that after his arrest, he had fantasized about murdering women since he was seven years old long before the abduction of his brother. So basically what you were saying is he had some of these violent tendencies and some of this, these reactions and things in his life before his brother, the whole thing with his brother. So his, the things that happened to his brother could have been somewhat of a trigger for him, but there's quite a good possibility that he would have done this stuff even without that in his background. But during his trial, he ended up pleading not guilty by reason of insanity saying that the family had a history of sexual abuse and mental illness manifesting itself, not only in the murders, but also his obsessive compulsive disorder disorder and his request to be provided with child pornography in return for his confession. So basically he was like, Hey, I'll give you all the details you want. If you just give me some child porn, some kitty Ew, porn. What? You didn't hear about that. So no. they basically tried to work him to get his confession by thinking him that making him think that he might possibly get that. But that was his, one of his major requests is he wanted some child porn in order to give them his confession. What the fuck? So basically he had a psychologist testify that he had obsessive compulsive disorder, mild autism and paraphilia. He was nevertheless found to be sane and convicted of four counts of first-degree murder by a jury August 27, 2002. In 2002, during the penalty phase of, his, phase of his trial, he was sentenced to death and entered to be housed at the Adjustment Center on death row at San Quentin Penitentiary in California. So he remains yeah. on death row as of today, but there haven't been any executions in California since 2006. Right. So the likelihood of anything I don't think I knew he was him, still alive. I know he is. He's tried to commit suicide several times. Carrie Stainer. This is from stickyfacts.com. Interesting facts about Carrie Stainer. I wonder what the fuck they have this in here. It says body type, athletic, hair color, brown, ethnicity, white. Nickname, the Yosemite Killer. Is it a dating profile? I don't know. It's the stickyfacts.com. 
date of birth, August 13th, 1961. He is now 57. He was born in Merced, California. I kind of feel like he used the brother thing as a convenient, like, explanation for why he was fucked up. I think he was fucked up. Absolutely. And then it was like, let me, let me, this horrible thing happened to me, so this justifies why I need to kill four people. But I, I think that, like, I don't know that he would have done it regardless, but I think that he, like, this happened and it was a convenient excuse for him when he got arrested. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, he, this case in itself is very interesting. This happened late 90s, I think. Um, and yeah, I think I he was, said, like, 97. Right. I was pretty young. I was a teenager at this time when this happened, and I vaguely remember hearing about it. But all of this happened near Yosemite National Park, which is very interesting. They did a, a whole huge thing on 2020 with this, where they talked about his life and his brother and all that, which is a very interesting story. So, Show So if you want more information on it, listeners, I suggest you go check out the 2020 episode because they really delve into this extremely deeply. I think it's a two-hour special that they did on it. But Oh, interesting. Five fast facts that you need to know about Kerry Stainer, the Yosemite killer. So he was obviously the Yosemite killer. His brother was kidnapped by a child molester in 72, which is something that I already addressed. And we're going to talk more about his brother, Stephen, in our bonus episode for this week. Number two, he murdered two women and two teenagers. During a five-month span in 99, Stainer murdered two women and two teenagers, Carol Sund and her daughter and the Argentinian student, and then the Yosemite Institute employee, Joey. At the time, Stainer was 37 and worked as a handyman at the hotel that the three first victims were staying at. After the last victim, Joey Ruth Armstrong, had been found, like, beheaded, basically, fear spread through Yosemite, and people were just, like, freaked out that there was, like, this raging mass murder on the loose. And I remember when the newscasts were coming out on this and how freaking scary people were and how scared people were because it was a while before they actually located him and brought him to justice when this whole thing was going yeah. on. And I remember news reports. I don't remember this happening at all. Saying, you know, not to go into like Yosemite during the time. by yourself. And they, like, just were recommending that people kind of avoid the park during that time period. Yikes. After Armstrong's body was found, police were immediately flooded with tips and calls. One park employee claimed he had noticed the blue and white 1979 International Scout parked at the, the ranger's house. The Joey Armstrong, or Joey, yeah, Joey Armstrong, the last victim. So that's, they, they linked him back by this car because it was a pretty unique car. He confessed to the murders after being found at a nudist colony. I definitely don't want to eat around naked people. I think, you know how they have like that theory that hell is like your own personal individualized hell? Yes. His hell should be having to hear about his brother nonstop. He is one sick and the yeah. fact that he's like into, everything like, should be about him is like Carrie Stainer, his brother was kidnapped. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like I get the sense that he's a, he's kind of a narcissist. And the fact that he's into kitty porn is just so like that's the one of the most disturbing parts to me. Yeah. It's like I can almost handle them being like a cold blooded killer. But like when they're into that kind of shit, too, it just makes me sick. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, that's like what I was saying. Like, it's super it's kind of weird to say like this is the super fucked up part but like it's that's so fucked up well at least from what i understand he killed the first two victims relatively quickly and then the third victim though man she probably just had an awful time of it because he's got her out there kind of like running around yosemite telling her he loves her and like thinking delusionally that he's building some sort of a close relationship with this i think she was like 15 Ugh. just 
And he's 37. And he's telling her, oh, I love you. You're the first person that's like ever cared about me in my life. And no one loves me and cares about me, but I know you do. And dragging this poor girl all over the park and telling her he's going to let her go. And of course she is like saying, I do care about you. Like she's trying to save her life. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, absolutely. She's not telling him anything that's genuine. She's trying to fucking survive. No. Exactly. Well, in any case, this, like, again, kind of points to that whole issue of people really let down their guard when they're in the situations when they're in and around national parks. And granted, Carol's son did what she was supposed to do. She denied him entry. She listened to her intuition, but then he broke her down. Stick to your guns. If if something doesn't feel right to you, call the fucking hotel front desk. Like, there have been so many cases. Like, yo, is this... There have been so Legit, many cases like where what's... men have either broken into or done something in a hotel room where they've knocked on the door and gained entry to a room and done damage and killed or raped women because they just let yeah. them in, assuming that, you know, if somebody tells you their hotel staff that you just are going to do what they say. Exactly. Don't do that. If you have questions and somebody comes and knocks on your damn door, don't let them in. Call the front desk and make and, sure it's legit. Yeah, like always find a second source. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to kind of address a couple of emails that we got. Um, oh, let's give a shout out too. Oh give yeah. I want to first give a shout out to Kay. I met her, a very, very nice young lady at Disneyland. She is a barber in the Los Angeles area. Um, she had a lot of amazing, really cool and colorful tattoos. And I went up and had a chat with her um, and talked a little bit about the show. And she asked if we could give her a shout out on the show. So, hey, Kay, um, what's up, girl? And Darcy, who do you have I like for shout when out? people, well, I was just going to say, I like when people that are in those kind of professions, like barber, tattoo artist, like just kind of those artistic professions, I like when they are unique and artistic. Yes. Because like, it makes me think, like, you have a really good eye for that kind of thing. And I'm very boring and bland and do not. So I want to take your opinion and you tell me what looks good. Cause I well, don't initially know. I was having a chat with my boyfriend about her because she came up and stood on the counter and she kind of had a shaved head and a mohawk and just tattoos all up and down, like on her neck and her face and everything. And it wasn't so much that we had any kind of negative connotations about her, but we were kind of wondering what she did for work because it's not, and necessarily as though you can have that sort of an appearance and be widely accepted in corporate America, unfortunately. Yeah, it's hard to work like an office job. Right. So we were like wondering that. what it was that she did for a living because she was clearly – she she didn't look like she was poor or lower class. She really had kind of an air of affluence about her at the same time as – you know what I mean? So we were just kind of wondering mm-hmm. what she did, and I went up and talked to her, and I guess she runs a barbershop. So it's That's cool. awesome. Shout out to Kay. Hi, Kay. <laughs> and who do you have for that? Eccentric dot extinct. Uh, so I want to give a quick shout out to eccentric dot extinct. Um, she gave us a super lovely shout out on her Instagram page. Um, she was talking about our episode, the too close to home episode where Sarah talks about her grandfather being, um, sentenced to death. And I talked about my friend Liz, who grew up across the street from a serial killer. It's a super, super interesting episode. It's on the heavier side of the topics we've discussed, but uh, it's really good. You should go check that out. And thank you to Eccentric Extinct. So if you want to follow her on Twitter, she is at Eccentric, E-C-C-E-N-T-R-I-C, Extinct, X-T-I-N-C-T. And thank you so much for your shout out. That was very lovely. And I think that's the first shout out we've had on social media. So 
Very much appreciated. Rock on, girl. A couple of emails really quick. We got an email from Trish and Justin. They say, we love your podcast, but we were wondering why you only do true crime half the time. Also, is there any reason why you guys avoid the bigger cases like Ted Bundy, etc.? So I think we just recorded we just recorded um, a bigger case about Ed Kemper and some of the Santa Cruz killers that's supposed to be coming out next week. So um, it's not necessarily a matter of thank you for the email, though, um, Trish and Justin. We're not necessarily avoiding any of the bigger cases. We do. We had mentioned in earlier episodes that we do like some of the less popular ones because we find it interesting to talk about new and interesting facts that have not been talked about before and some of the more bizarre and interesting details. Um, but we definitely have plans to talk about some of the bigger folks and, and, but we try to make it, try to do it in sort of a different way than other people. So I think for us, we're sort of letting those things sort of creatively marinate for us so that we can think of some ways to come up with some unique angles for the bigger cases that everyone's already heard over and over and over again. What about you, Darcy? Yeah. Yeah. Like new ways to approach it. And I, I am somebody that I don't, everybody seems to think this is a weird characteristic. I think it's perfectly normal. I read Wikipedia as a hobby. Uh, every night before I go to bed, when people like play games on their phone or do whatever, I'm reading Wikipedia and I like Wikipedia rabbit holes. And that's kind of why I like this podcast because I obviously am very interested in true crime, but I also like other really obscure, fascinating details. Like when we did the national parks part one, we talked about the zone of death and Yellowstone. I think that's a really interesting topic. So I, I kind of like that we have that new angle on coming at these things from a, from a different standpoint, but obviously the true crime episodes are, are going to be our more popular ones because that's a really popular topic right now. And it is something that we are both very interested in. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I like, I like the more obscure ones because everybody's talking about Ted Bundy, especially now when we did kind of talk about the movie, you know, yeah. the Zac Efron movie and stuff like that. But but everybody's talking about it. It's it's covered. There's kind of not much more to get into about people like him. So I like the things about like Santa Cruz talking about, you know, the murder capital of the world and things like that and coming at things from a different kind of angle. But I think that's I what like we've done for our latest much. couple of episodes. So stay tuned. We don't plan on exclusively focusing on true crime. Um, despite the fact that it may appear that way now, we kind of decided that we're going to be putting out a bonus episode during the middle of the week that will be about non-crime related um, topics and then focusing our main episode every week on the crime related topics. So stay tuned for a little bit of a formatting change from us and we'll see how that works. Um, if it becomes popular and folks are still tuning into both types of episodes, then we will continue with that formatting. If it's less popular and it's not really worth our time and effort, then we'll probably drop it and maybe stick to the more of the true crime with a couple of little peppered, interesting facts. For sure. And thank you for writing in. Uh, and if you have any suggestions or anything like, thing like that you, you want us to cover, that would also be awesome. I have another email from a girl named Stephanie who says, hi, my hubby and I are really digging your new podcast. Do you guys have Yay. plans to do merch for your show? So thank you Ooh. for your email, Stephanie. Um, we definitely want to get into that at some point, but that will sort of depend on how big the podcast becomes. We've gotten a pretty positive reception so far. Um, people like some of the stuff that we're doing, and we're growing every day as a podcast. But that I will probably depend on how much 
of an audience we gain. Um, because if people want this stuff and start requesting it, then we will certainly provide that for people. That's always been part of my plan for a podcast. I've always been into um, design of merchandise and fun and cute little creatures and and funny little sayings with those creatures. Um, I design a lot of the kind of cart- more cartoony and, and interesting little quotes that we do for our Twitter and Instagram feeds that are not like the true crime pictures. So I can definitely see... And when you see... say a lot, you mean like all of them. Exactly. <laughs> so I can definitely see some merch in the future um, with those sorts of images in that way. I'm selling those on shirts and bags and mugs and things like that. So stay tuned for that. But um, we're going to need to get a little farther along in the process. We've only been doing this, believe it or not, for a few months. So we want to make sure that we are fully developing our show in, a, in the best way possible before we delve into new areas that um, take a little bit more time and energy, time and energy away from our main focus. But thank you, Stephanie. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Keep sending your emails, guys. We love hearing from you. Wrap it, snap it up, flip it, rub it down, and all that good stuff. So long, farewell, folks. Please rate, review, and subscribe. What's our social media, Darcy? We are on Twitter at the BFD Podcast, and that is also our same name for Instagram. So you can go check us out there. We'll put it in the show notes um, too. And yeah, and our our email. What's our email? Our email is the BFD Podcast at gmail.com. Awesome. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff and true crime, that is. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye.